If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. We are fast coming to the end of the exposition of this great book, and I'm going to try to string it out as long as I possibly can, because I am not yet finished with my own meditation on this great book. And we are dealing with a section over the past several weeks, with a couple of weeks off in between, in discussing the matter of non-biblical opinions, gray areas of fellow Christians and how we are to act toward each other in this context. These gray areas are thusly called because they don't seem to be black or white issues of obedience or disobedience for Christians. And therefore, believers are free to do them if they desire or choose not to do them if they wish. And there are a whole range of them which, of course, aren't necessarily and primarily dealt with here, but are certainly, by way of secondary application, strewn all through the Christian church, these non-biblical opinions, these gray areas of the Christian life. Paul chooses a few of them here to deal with in the church at Rome. We have chosen to at least broach some of those subjects here in our own church, and we'll do so yet again as the days go ahead. But this decision to choose certain areas that are open for Christians is not without potential for great harm in the body. And everything we do as Christians, especially as it relates to our actions within the spiritual body of Christ, we have an obligation to those around us not to unnecessarily offend them if we can possibly avoid it. But it is difficult. How do we make choices, and we all must make them, without offending our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and yet be able to still have those certain freedoms which are not spelled out as right or wrong in our Bibles. And that's why I have specifically entitled this series, Unity, Liberty, Maturity, How Christians Can Learn to Get Along with One Another. And in our attempt to allow Romans 14.1 through chapter 15, verse 13, to guide us in our pursuit of unity, liberty, and maturity as the body of Christ, which in part is made up, as we know it, of course, as the Bible Church of Little Rock, we've made our way through the first 12 verses of Romans 14. In these verses, as you know, if you've been with us, we have spoken both of the strong and weak Christians, as Paul designates them here, with neither group, I should underscore, being seen as not necessarily superior to each other. Not at all. They are merely to be seen as different from one another and how they approach the Christian life in these non-biblical disputed matters, these gray areas of the freedom of our individual choices as believers. And over the last four messages... I've attempted to define who these two groups of Christians really are. And now, with our attention focused upon Romans 14, verses 23 to 33, we specifically want to focus our attention upon how the strong are commanded here by Paul to respond to the weak. Let me read it as the setting for our overview this morning. Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. 
So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, as I said, Paul specifically centers in, in this passage of Scripture, on the group designated as the strong, and how they are to understand the concepts of stumbling blocks and defenses toward the weak. And that's why I have subtitled this particular series of messages, beginning with this morning, Dealing with Stumbling Blocks and Offenses. And this is the first part of several parts as we work through verses 13 to 23, attempting to understand how it is the strong are supposed to deal with be patient with, support, understand, and love the weak. And this is a very, very important understanding of the whole of Romans 14.1 verses 15, uh, excuse me, through chapter 15 verse 13. Now, Paul very interestingly in verse 13 of our text does a little word play on this idea of passing judgment and decide. What do I mean by that? Well, that little phrase there, pass judgment, is one word in the Greek text, krino, and so is that one word listed in our ESV Bibles as decide. That also is the word krino. And he's doing a little word play here, and he's basically saying this, that in the first term, pass judgment, he uses in a negative sense saying that we are sinfully passing judgment upon our brothers and sisters who are different from us. Instead, he says, in the positive sense, using that same Greek word, we are to decide in a positive way how to respond to those Christians who are different from ourselves. In other words, we should never unlovingly pass judgment upon one another for the way we live out these non-biblical gray area choices of our lives. Rather, we should decide or discern or judge never to do anything that is within our power which would injure our fellow believers. That's really the setting of the context of what he's about to tell us. Now, having said that, there are still, at least in my mind, and I'm sure in yours also, unanswered questions about exactly how to do that. How do you avoid passing judgment on somebody who is very different from you, making choices that are very different from your own, and yet at the same time deciding or discerning how to love them in the greatest way or the better way, the kinder way. Instead of passing judgment, how do we decide to love them? How do we decide to endure and put up with these decisions which are very different from ourselves, even sometimes when we can't understand in the slightest how those kinds of decisions could be made. In other words, you could ask a series of questions like this. If I'm to do that, and if I'm told here never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother, what constitutes a stumbling block? What does it mean to place a hindrance in their way? What does that mean? How do I determine this? How does a brother determine that toward me? 
What does love look like toward them? What does love look like from them to me? How can I serve my brother or my sister without being enslaved to their choices in an effort to defer to them, to love them, yet without being enslaved to really freely live out my own decisions and my own conscience in the midst of loving them as my co-laborer in Christ? How can I do that? How can I love them, defer to them? How can I work with them even though their choices are very different than my own? Not black and white things, not things that are clearly spelled out in the Word of God, but the discerning of issues that are different, the discerning of choices that are very different, and we're going to have those. As someone said once, opinions are like noses and often they are fashioned in every which way. It's true. Every single one of us has choices about how to live the Christian life in some of these liberty areas. How am I supposed to get along with my brothers and sisters even when I know these choices are very different than my own and in some cases these choices are going to collide? How do I deal with them? How do they deal with me? Well, just as I did when I opened up these series of messages from Romans 14, when we began to unfold them, and when I began to define, as best I could, these Pauline terms of strong and weak, I believe that the key to understanding this section, just like we understood in the first 12 verses, is to understand these two ideas, stumbling blocks and offenses. And how Paul is exhorting the Roman believers in light of those two terms. I think they're very, very important for us to understand. And to show you how these two terms are significant, I want to show you this morning what they mean and how they are referred to in this passage. And then helpfully and hopefully showing all of us the significance of them uh, of those terms in helping us correctly understand what Paul commands of us in light of those two terms. And I hope to be able to do that this morning. So I want to talk really, if you want to outline, to talk about three kinds of things. Number one, what's a stumbling block? Number two, what's a hindrance? And number three, maybe an overview of how those terms are listed in this passage and maybe some other passages where these words are used so that we can understand what the Bible truly does teach. I remember when I introduced the very subject of Romans 14 and we had our care groups and one of the things that came back to me from many of the care groups was, yes, but what's a stumbling block? What's a legitimate stumbling block? What's a, a ruse of a stumbling block? What's, what's a hindrance? What does that really mean? How does Paul really define that? Well, that's why this is so important for us to know what Paul really means here. And so I want to give us this morning, in a sense, an overview of verses 14 to 23, hopefully setting us on a course of keeping track of the entire forest, even amidst our focus in the days ahead on individual trees, okay? So, number one, what is Paul's meaning in the usage of this idea of stumbling block? He clearly says in verse 13, Therefore, let us not negatively so pass judgment on one another that his fellow Christians any longer, which of course implies that they were indeed doing that, but rather decide, crino, to, to discern, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, if you ever see in your Bibles what I call 100% words when it says something like this with no qualifier, never to put a stumbling block in a believer's way. Never to do that. Well, that's pretty important. If I'm being told never to do something, and there doesn't appear to be a qualifier here, then I better know what this idea of stumbling block means. What does it mean? And it is translated, at least in the ESV, as stumbling block. You may have some other translation where a different kind of English word is being used to translate the Greek word pros, comma, pros, comma. And it could be defined as to fall, to fall over something. And it's speaking obviously in a metaphorical sense. We're not talking about someone literally falling. It's used, of course, that way in its general usage, but obviously in this context it's being used metaphorically. It's talking about the activity of someone spiritually falling, 
or spiritually tripping or spiritually stumbling over something. And in the case of this particular usage in Romans 14, 13, the immediate context suggests that what is at issue here is actually what somebody else is doing that's causing someone to fall, to have a spiritual downfall. And obviously, as I said, Paul is zeroing in, even though he's hinted at and that he's spoken to at least to some degree, while not mentioning them explicitly, the strong, he is definitely calling upon the strong here to do something toward the weaker brother. And he says, never, toward the strong, put a stumbling block, something which will spiritually cause the downfall of your weaker brother. Don't ever do that. Whatever you do in your Christian life, even in those areas where Scripture gives liberty of choice, your actions, Paul is saying, could seriously, in a potential, bring other believers into a spiritual stumbling. And he says, don't do that. Be very, very vigilant. Be very, very careful. Look at Romans 14.20 as well. Verse 20, do not, and here he zeroes in on what the Romans were grappling with, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. And we'll see in that context that the work of God is referring to the work that God has done in another believer's life. He's talking, using this idea of work of God to refer to another believer, a weaker believer. Don't destroy a weaker believer. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another, and there's our word, stumble by what he eats. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine, and there's where he brings in drinking wine for the first time, or, here's another unqualified idea, or do anything, anything that causes your brother to what? To stumble, to fall spiritually, to have a downfall, to trip. He says, don't do that, especially for the sake of food or drink. By the way, look also in a different context. We looked at it the very first time in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And you'll see, again, even though a bit different in its usage, the same idea of this stumbling. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is, of course, talking about food offered to idols. In Romans, it probably was referring to a majority of Jewish believers or God-fearers who were following Jewish tradition about not eating meat either at all, like vegetarians, or drinking wine, maybe because it had been used in a libation to a foreign god, something like that. This is specifically speaking to, to Christians who had come out of pagan backgrounds. And according to verse 4, therefore, Paul's being asked a question as to the eating of food offered to idols. We don't know what the original question was, but we assume that's the question because this is his answer. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, it's not real, and that there is no God but one, that is, Jehovah God, Yahweh God, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, quote-unquote, and many lords, quote-unquote, yet for us there is one God, that is the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, affirming the deity of Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist, Christ being Creator. We just sang about that. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, that is, somebody who was a pagan person who was serving all kinds of of gods who aren't gods, lords who aren't lords, and that person comes into the fellowship of the church, he sees that Jesus Christ is truly Lord of all, just as we sang a moment ago, Jesus is Lord, and he eats food that has been previously offered to an idol, one of the very idols that he may have in fact been worshiping, And their conscience being, what? Weak is defiled. And you can know that very well. There are people today who have done things 
in a past Christian in a past pre-Christian life, and when they came to Christ, and some other person in the church says, "Hey, do you want to go do so and so?" And the person says, "Well, now wait a minute. I know that." You believe there's freedom to that, and maybe there is, but I used to do those things, and at least, even though there might be freedom in that action, not something that's right or wrong, but something, something that is free for us to choose, I used to do that when I was outside of Christ, and to do that now would smitten my conscience. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be involved in that. You go ahead, but I can't do that. Or, maybe even someone says, no, I don't even think you should do that at all, either. This is what's happening in this context. Look at verse 8. Paul answers the question about food, food in general. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. In other words, it's neutral. It's really amoral, food is. It doesn't commend us to God if we eat it and we're no better off if we stay away from it. It's, it's all the same If we abstain from it, we're no better off. If we do it, we're no better off. It's really just inanimate. Verse 9, but take care. This is his instruction to the Corinthian believers, just like Paul is giving us here in Romans 14 and 15. But take care, Corinthians, that this right of yours, this liberty of yours, this opportunity of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? He sees you doing it and then you encourage him to do it. And when he does it, his conscience is weak and then his conscience is smitten. And then according to verse 11, and so by your knowledge, your knowledge that there really aren't any gods except God the Father and he goes along in the practice that you've gone along with because you have the knowledge and yet he does not, this weak person is destroyed. Destroyed. Strong word. The brother, same language as Romans, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now, that is very serious. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, this person who came out of paganism, and he's not sure, he's got a weak conscience, and you lead him into it, and he does it, and his conscience is defiled, you're sinning against your brother, and you're wounding his conscience when it is weak, and when you do, you're actually sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, here's the implication for the strong, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Plug in anything else. Maybe we're not talking about meat today. Maybe we're not talking about something like that. Maybe we're talking about any other area for which there is a genuine disputation on the matter And you have a brother in Christ, he's in the fellowship, she's here in the church, and she doesn't have the kind of conscience that you do, which is free. Your conscience is not smitten because of those things. You're able to go there. It's not right or wrong. It's not black or white. You have the freedom to choose. And your brother or sister is coming along, or you're having this dialogue, and this person says, I just can't do that either because I've come out of that background or I don't yet understand these things or I think I understand them and I think I ought to stay away from them and I think you ought to stay away from them too. If they have that weakened conscience and it's smitten, it's pricked because they believe that something is in and of itself wrong and you you have knowledge that it isn't, this is something that's really not a problem. Should you... Continue ever and always to convince the weak that their position is weak. Or should you say, I'm going to take the spiritual high road and I'm going to refrain from these things because I don't even want to make it an issue for my weaker brother. I don't want to make it an issue for them. 
It's, it's no conscience issue with me, but it is with them. But what I don't want to do is to place in their way in the Christian journey together as we are interlocking our arms and walking together down the path of Christianity. I don't want to do anything that causes that person to have an obstruction in their way for which when they come across it, stumble and fall. That's what Paul is saying. That's the first major and important word that he uses here, and that's the context out of which he uses it. Second word, hindrance. Hindrance. Look back at Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance or obstacle in the way of a brother. And this is the Greek word scandalon, for which obviously we get the English connotation scandalous. Scandalon. It's defined as that which is that which causes sin, or that which gives occasion for sin, or that which causes stumbling, that which is an obstacle, that which is a hindrance which is placed in someone's way over which they fall or are tripped. It's virtually synonymous with the previous word, stumbling block. In fact, in several places, they're used together, just like here. Indeed, you don't have to turn there because we don't have time, but in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 14, it may be where these two words were joined together and became the basis out of which they're used together synonymously. Listen to Leviticus 19:14. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear God, I am the Lord." Don't curse the deaf. Don't put a stumbling block before the blind. In other words, they have handicaps. And we might even infer from that there's some weakness there. They have some challenges, challenges that you and I don't have. And therefore, we are commanded not to treat them in an unloving manner. Very, very important. In fact, let's trace ourselves a little bit in Matthew chapter 13, and I want to talk about these synonymous concepts about stumbling and hindrances. These are very, very important. Matthew chapter 13, this is the level of importance that Jesus himself places on these ideas. Matthew chapter 13, verse 41. This is explaining, Jesus does, the parable of the soils. And he begins to answer those. He says in verse 37, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. And the reapers are angels. Oh, how I would wish that every time I sat down with my Bible, I had Jesus' own interpretation right there next to the text, right? Wouldn't have to do a whole lot of work there. You'd get this parable and then you'd get this explanation and you'd say, folks, I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God that this is what that interpretation means. We don't have that all the time, but we do have it here. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin, and that's one of our words here in Romans 14. Causes of sin. That's one of our words. And all lawbreakers. In other words, Jesus has some very important things to say to those people, in this context, unbelievers, who are causing other people to sin. The devil and his minions are causing people not to have the good seed in the right soil. And the Son of Man will one day send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, it's a very serious thing to be a cause for somebody to sin. Very serious thing. Look at chapter 16. This is that word hindrance. 
chapter 16, verse 23. You know it well. But he turned and said to Peter, after Peter, of course, took him aside and rebuked him. Imagine that, Peter rebuking the Lord about something. But he turned and said to Peter, get me, get behind me. And then what's the next word? Satan. Satan has somehow infiltrated the mind or the ideas of Peter. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, in this rebuke of Peter's. You are a stumbling block, a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind, probably Satan, possibly Peter, but certainly Behind Peter's statement, it is Jesus saying, you are not setting your mind, Satan, on the things of God, but on the things of man. Very serious idea to cause a hindrance to somebody else. Satan does it, unbelievers do it, and even unwitting believers can do it. Look at chapter 18. Earlier in our Scripture reading, we stopped... At verses 1 to 6, but in Matthew 18, notice that even though Jesus takes the object lesson of a little child, he uses it for his own teaching purposes, according to verse 3, when he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, not turn and becoming children, but turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, as this child is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? What he's saying is the, the greatest attribute of a little child is utter humility and dependence. A child is totally dependent upon their parents. Every one of those, those children that you saw come up on the platform for that parent-baby dedication, utterly dependent upon their parents. Can't do anything without them. They must have their father to help them and lead them and guide them in every way. They must have a parent to do so. Now notice the very, very negative warning, verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones... Here now it's not talking about a child. It's talking about a believer who has childlike faith. Whoever causes one of these little ones... Why do we know that? Because he says next, who believe in me. It's talking about a believer there. It's not talking about a little baby. He's using that as an object lesson to speak of the childlikeness of the believer. Somebody who has their confidence and trust in God. Who's placed their faith in Christ. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... That's our idea again. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Temptations to sin. Same word. Same concept. For it is necessary that temptations come. It's inevitable that sin will be in the world and those who will try to entice people to sin, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Woe. That means consigned to judgment. Damn somebody through whom a temptation for a believer to sin and the context sin recklessly. Woe to that person. Same idea, Mark 9.42, parallel passage. How about Luke 17? Look there, Luke 17. These are very important passages that help us understand Romans 14 now. Luke 17, verse 1, And he said to his disciples, now he's talking to his own brethren, he's teaching them, and he says to these eleven, Temptations to sin, that's our word again, are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And then immediately he's talking to believers, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Don't tempt him to sin. 
when he sins and repents, forgive him. Treat each other in this way. Look at Romans chapter 16, right at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. Again, a very serious warning about this idea of stumbling blocks, of hindrances. And I've shown you both contexts that refer to unbelievers and even believers tempting others to sin. Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, hindrances, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews. Now in that sense, the stumbling block was supposed to be there. Why? Because Jesus Christ was presented to them He was a stumbling block to them. They stumbled over Him. Some of the usages here refer to Christ in such a way that we are told emphatically by the prophets and by the apostles that the stumbling block is Christ Himself and that people are stumbling over Him. He's a rock of offense. But if it's unbelievers placing a stumbling block in an unbeliever's way or a believer's way, or if it's a believer placing a stumbling block in a believer's way, it's all very, very serious. Very serious. In 1 John 2.10, very important word for us this morning goes right along with what this text in Romans 14 is telling us. 1 John 2.10, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in Him there is no cause for stumbling. See, you love your brother, you abide in the light, there's no cause for stumbling with how you're loving. And that's really a great parallel to what we're talking about here in Romans 14. And with those two words, which really frame up the correct understanding of what Paul is talking about here In Romans 14, you're going to see this passage unfold. Let's look at an overview of it. I've given you verse 13. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I know, I know now that you understand stumbling blocks and hindrances. I know also something else. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, Paul's really saying, I'm a part of the strong. That's my position personally because it's a series of dead idols if you're talking about pagan folks coming into Christianity out of paganism and if you're coming into Christianity from Judaism, he says there really is only one God and he really hasn't given us these kinds of restrictions that the weak believer thinks he has. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus with the new covenant what he's done and in Acts 10 he declared all foods clean. We should really eat anything if it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer but I know this that even though it is unclean in itself We have to make consideration for those who haven't made that link. We have to make consideration for those who still need to learn, who still need to grow and mature up to a position of the strong. And so what does he say? It is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. What's the answer for someone who thinks that a decision that you're making, you're a part of the strong... 21st century application, and they say, that's wrong, that's unclean. For anyone who thinks it unclean, to him it is unclean. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, the strong choosing to eat the meat that the weak cannot eat, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. In other words, implied, I understand your position, weak believer. I understand that. Now, don't think pejoratively now on that 
phrase, weak believer, don't think that we're just talking about this, this weak, immature person who, does, who doesn't understand the first thing about Christianity. He's weak, and even though, according to verse 6, he is abstaining from eating, and when he does it, he abstains in honor of the Lord, and he gives thanks to God, he's just as fastidious about his Christian life as you are, and when you choose to ignore his grief at what you're eating, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. If your brother is grieved by your eating something that he perceives as unclean, and the implication is that you're still going to choose to eat it anyway, then you've decided to place a stumbling block in his way. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. You put a hindrance in a fellow believer's path, it's going to bring him to spiritual downfall. If you do this, you're no longer walking in love toward your brother. You're walking in hatred toward him, or at least apathy and indifference toward him. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 16 It teaches us that what you regard as good, I'm free to do it. There's no restrictions on me. It's good for me to do this. It will be spoken of him as evil. So don't choose to do so when as a strong Christian, you presumably have the maturity to give up the gray area for the sake of the weakness of his conscience. And you say, wait one moment. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's right. It sounds as though maybe the weaker believer is manipulating the situation enough so that really his way wins the day. That that doesn't seem right to me. And as I just quoted verses 6 and 7, he's abstaining in honor of the Lord. You're not abstaining in honor of the Lord. You ought to be able to say, look, you do your thing, I do my thing, and we'll be just fine. Except what kind of problem will that generate in the church? You just go your direction, I'll go mine. You know what that has caused in the church, especially in these last days? Protestantism is a many-splintered thing. That's exactly what happens. People just say, look, you go your way and I'll go my way and we'll start our church and you do your church the way you do church and we'll all be happy. And unbelievers look at us and say, is that love? You know, it's like that man who was adrift, came to a deserted island. He was there all by himself. He was there for years and years, all by himself, nobody else around. And finally, after many, many years, a ship came by. He waved them down. They came upon the island. They were looking, trying to find out, how did you possibly survive? And they looked off in the distance, and they saw two buildings. And they said, well, what are those buildings? And he said, well, the first one there is... Is my church. And they said, really? Well, what's the other building? He said, well, that was the church I used to go to. <laughs> that is so true. If we don't like what's happening in one church, we'll just go and build another one. And he was the only one around. He couldn't even agree with himself. That's, that's the problem here, and Paul is attempting to address that. You can't just say, well, look, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and then we'll be fine. I'll go my way, you go your way. Look, you've regarded what I consider good as evil. Fooey on you. I'll just do what's good to me. You do what's good to you. The problem is that doesn't develop unity. This weaker brother is just as convinced as you are that his abstaining from certain foods and drinks and his observance of certain holy days are of monumental importance to his worship. And you're participating in specifically eating and drinking certain foods and holding no certain days as having any greater importance than any other is just as convincing in your mind as his choices. But here, the main difference between the two, if the weaker believer, constrained as he is by his conscience and who simply can't participate in certain things and who has to do other things to fulfill what he believes is the right kind of worship... If he is deferred to, 
he will be deferred to because he's the one with the pricked conscience. And if you're the one who are among the strong, presumably meaning that you don't have these areas which pricks your conscience, you therefore can freely give up your liberty for the sake of greater unity. You can say as a mature, strong believer, I don't need to do that. I don't have to be involved in that. I can give that up for the sake of the process of developing unity. In other words, you can choose, unlike your weaker brother who has little capacity to choose because of his weaker conscience, to forsake your liberties out of love and deference because you can take it or leave it. I've seen this over and over and over again in ways that are both great and poor examples. Great examples of strong believers who just say, I don't have to do that. I love you. I I don't want to do anything that violates your conscience, even though I'm free to do it. And I've seen others run roughshod over weaker brethren because they just don't rightly understand their liberties in Christ and unity is fractured. But boy, if you step forward in love, choosing not to destroy the work of God, the work of God being the believer himself, you don't want to do anything that destroys the one for whom Christ died. And Paul knows that. And he's really even using himself as an example. I know And I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Therefore, if he tells me it's unclean, then I'm telling myself it's unclean, and I won't do it either for the sake of his conscience, for loving him. I don't want to disregard my brother. I don't want to ignore my brother for the sake of food, for the sake of drink. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to me. That's why verse 17 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, the kingdom's not about eating. It's not about drinking. It's not about getting involved in the wars of the disputed matters of non-biblical opinions over things like food and drink. You mean to say that we're going to fight as Christians over the use of food and drink? That's not what the kingdom's about. The kingdom is about righteousness. The kingdom is about peace. The kingdom is about joy. If I've I've been involved in fighting with Christians over food and drink and whatever other non-biblical issues of the 21st century church, then I've lost sight of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I've, I've lost it. This is not what I should do. Love them. Take care of them. Seek to be a mature, strong Christian who can far more easily decide to give up something rather than continuing to do something which hurts your brother. You say, that's one-sided. I don't like that. Well, being accommodating and loving and deferring, it's not easy. It's not easy, especially when everybody ought to think the way I think. It's just not easy for people who don't live the Christian life the way I choose to do so. This is is Christianity in one sense 101 because I want to love. And I know it, it, it could turn on the logic that someone thinks Christianity then is being reduced down to the lowest, to the weakest to the most immature level, rather than teaching these weaker brothers and sisters to elevate their thinking. Come on, get up here where we are. But see, that's, that's not what he's describing when he says weaker brothers. He, he's, not, he's not determining a class level of Christianity, and here's the strong way up here, and here's the weak way down here, and the strong just need to keep trying to pull the weak up, and the weak, all oh, they're just always trying to pull the strong down. That's not what he's saying. He's actually putting both of them on a par. And he's saying, here are the characteristics of the strong, and here are the characteristics of the weak, and one doesn't have the conscience that binds him so, and the other one does. How are we going to get along? How are we going to get along? If you're a stronger believer, your maturity ought to win out. 
What kind of maturity? If you're a stronger believer, you can grapple with this. You can talk with them. You can pray with them. But in the end, if they're not convinced, love them by choosing to give it up because if you're free to do it, then you're free not to do it. You can give it up. You don't have to do it. Nothing's binding your conscience to do it. And if you choose to do it this way, what does Paul say is your reward? Because maybe somebody's thinking like that says, yeah, but what's in it for me? Look at verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ, this stronger believer who sees the kingdom, not as food and drink, but as righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, who's choosing not to destroy the one for whom Christ died, but is walking in love toward Him, here's your reward. If you serve Christ in this way, it just happens to be acceptable to God and approved by men. Is that a good enough reward? Is that good enough for you? Is that testimony enough to the grace of Christ as you give up your liberty? Boy, what a verse. Whoever thus does what I'm telling them to do serves Christ and is acceptable to God and approved by men. That's that's the essence of Christianity. Approved by God. Approved by men. Acceptable to God. Acceptable to men. Verse 19, so let us pursue what makes for peace. Not your own opinion, not your own logic, not trying to pull the weak up to where you think you are. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, not spiritual downfalling. Verse 20, do not command, do not, for almost like this, folks, for the sake of food... Destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. I'm telling you, I'm a part of the strong. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You don't, you're not required to eat anything in Christianity to be a Christian. So you can eat stuff, you can not eat stuff, and you still are a Christian. That's what he's saying. And then he says, verse 21, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine, first time he's mentioned that, or to do anything that causes your brother to fall, stumble, have an obstacle, a hindrance. The faith that you have, this is sort of like a little postscript at the end of this section. This is sort of like a concluding set of two verses one to each, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. In other words, you can continue to trust God in the way that you have, the faith that you have, the convictions that you have. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, you can continue to think everything you've thought about the freedom to choose those areas. That's not a problem. He's not asking you to chuck your logic at the door. He's not telling you, you've got to come over to the weak person's position. You've got to see his logic. You've got to do it the way he says you have to do it. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying, blessed are you when you have no reason to pass judgment. Blessed are you when you can eat all kinds of meat. You can eat vegetables, as sickening as they are. You can eat anything that you want. And you'll be approved by God, except... When it comes in conflict with your brother who has a conscience-bound conviction in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ that to do something like that in the fellowship, maybe he's talking about the love feast right before the communion service when they all got together and they ate together and maybe it was causing a whole rift of problems and issues between Gentiles and Jews and maybe all of these folks who were professing Christ were saying, look, look at what he's eating. Boy, I just, oh, I couldn't do that. So he says to the strong, look, you, you have the strength to say no to these things. You, you can do that. And you have no reason to have a conscience prick yourself, so don't worry about it. You're approved of God, but give it up if it means that you're not walking in love. And verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. You see, he's not saying he's got a problem that he shouldn't have. He is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. 
He's not coming over to the strong's position being convinced because when he puts that food in his mouth, when he takes that meat and he puts it there, when he takes that wine and he puts it to his lips, he goes, no, I can't do that. It's not being faithful to God. He says, the eating's not from faith. And in this profound statement, we'll get into it more. For whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. To him it is sin. If you don't do something based upon the conviction, the indicator of faithfulness to God, then to you it is sin. Don't do it. You see how how, how important it is for the strong not to lure the weak into sin. It would be better if a millstone be hung around the neck and for that person to be drowned in the deepest sea rather than causing another believer to sin. It's a very serious word. So I ask you this morning as we close, what's your attitude toward those with whom you disagree over opinions and disputed matters? What's your attitude? Where's your heart? Are you willing to give up your liberty for the sake of those who haven't arrived where you are, who don't share your opinions. Love conquers all. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts in some ways are devastated because all of us, myself included, can think of times and situations in which our convictions were both articulated and carried out in such a way that we did indeed lack love and we did indeed run roughshod over our brothers and sisters in Christ. They were so fastidious about why they shouldn't and we were so convinced about why we should. And yet, Lord, you've given us a third way. The way of unity, the way of liberty, the way of maturity. By allowing those who could give it up to give it up. So that they might walk in love. Lord, would this not be the pattern of even the Lord Jesus who according to Romans 15, 1-3, did not seek to please himself, but to please his neighbor in coming to this earth from the glories of heaven so that he might serve as a ransom for many. Truth be told, Lord, we were all weak. And we would have all perished if not for Christ giving up those glories of eternity past. Not seeking His own will, but Your will, Father. Oh, what a pattern. What an exemplar. Let us serve Christ in this way because we see Christ serving You and dying for us. Lord, I pray that we would walk in love in these areas that have no wrong or right answer particularly. And Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who may have ever and always in the pattern and the habits of their life chosen to fulfill self and to seek their own will. Lord, may you convict them and may you bring them to Christ. For we are not all about ourselves. And for which we preach Jesus Christ and not ourselves. Simply bond servants for your sake. Lord, I pray. I pray that the unity and the liberty and the maturity of our church would grow exponentially through this series of messages. So that we would see 
that imposing our convictions on others is destructive. And we don't want to destroy anyone for whom Christ has died. May we live by walking in love, serving Christ, through whose name we pray. Amen.